Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. I am so stoked about this episode. I love all our guests. I love getting to talk to people at any stage of their career from any walk of life, as you all know. But sometimes I get to talk to one of my own heroes and it just kind of blows my mind, honestly, that I'm in a position to do that. And I'm thankful for all of you that have been listening over the years who have allowed it to get to this point. Thank you. My guest today is Eric Valentine. I'm assuming you know who he is and what he's done, but just in case you don't, I'm going to give you a little intro on him. He's a record producer, musician, business owner, content creator. He started off drumming in his own band called T-Ride back in the 90s and eventually ended up self-producing their album. But then he went on to work with a ton of your favorite bands, as well as your mom's, your brother's, and your sister's, and your dad's favorite bands, including Smash Mouth, Good Charlotte, Queens of the Stone Age, Rune 5, Taking Back Sunday, and way more than we have time to call out. In addition to his legendary career as a producer and engineer, he also started a very well-known studio called Barefoot Recording, and he started a gear company that makes some incredibly high-end and unique outboard gear called Undertone Audio, and he makes a lot of content on his YouTube, which can be found by searching Making Records with Eric Valentine. Very simple. Let's get to it. I present you Eric Valentine. Eric Valentine, welcome to the URM podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It is an honor to have you. It's good to be here. Let's just get right into it because I know you don't have a crazy amount of time. I consider you a renaissance man. And you're someone that's into gear on an electrical engineering level, like actually making it. Uh You call yourself an astronomer. You build rockets with your kids. (laughs) Right. Scuba dive. You know, you're doing all kinds of stuff that requires scientific thinking and understanding of math. And however, you've said that despite all the changes to the way that things work in the studio over the years, that especially 
as related to the role of what a producer is. You said that the most important thing, in your opinion, still is it for an upcoming producer is to nail that songwriting element that a producer brings uh, that Phil Spector pioneered. Yeah. And then also you called your channel making records, not mixing, not making gear, but making records, which is art. So I'm just wondering, because it's rare to have someone that understands both the science side and the art side of of this. In your mind, where does the technical and the artistic meet? Yeah, you know, um, that's always been a, a really interesting part of all of this for me, and it satisfies, you know, both sides of my brain. I, I called it making records because I feel like it captures everything that goes into the record-making process. Instead mm-hmm. of saying, you know, producing with Eric Valentine or engineering or mixing or whatever. Because, you know, I've done all of those things and, and typically when given the option, I do all of them on the records that I work on. Then there's the whole technical side of getting into the gear and everything. And it's all a part of it. It's all a part of creating a record uh, for people to listen to. And so the whole thing has been completely fascinating to me and when I got into the the equipment side of it there was really a certain point you know when you have these moments where you talk to different technical folks and they'll start you know expounding on what's important or not important about a piece of equipment either an equalizer or a preamp or something it's all about the transformers or if you don't have these particular you know polypropylene caps then your thing will sound terrible or you know all this kind of ridiculous declarations and I really wanted to just like explore that for myself and like to me everything has to equate to how it feels ultimately and that's those were the questions that i was trying to answer like do the different dielectrics in a capacitor actually make the music feel different when i listen to it and that's what i really you know set out to explore and try and answer for myself you know and so it's an incredible marriage of the emotional creative side and the real, like, technical mathematics side, and bringing those two together to see how the formulas actually translate into how something makes you feel when it comes out of the speakers. And it was a, it was an incredible journey to take and, and try to actually make those connections for myself, you know? Honestly, I'm still on it. Like, you know, I've just finished, almost done, rewiring my whole studio in Topanga because I have a new thing that I want to (laughs) try to see how it makes the music feel, you know? It's endless for me. Are you able to say what the new thing is? Sure, yeah, I don't care. All right, what is the new thing? This was the kind of the revelation that I had was that, you know, a lot of people talk about the API sound or the Neve sound or whatever old, vintage, wonderful, lovely thing that we love the sound of, you know, and I think people have the misconception of that. Even if they get, let's say you get an original, amazing, pristine Neve 1073 that everybody loves and it's the incredible thing, and you plug something into that expecting it to sound like an album done on a Neve console, you're not even close to what (laughs) a Neve console does. Because, you know, the way consoles are designed, and at this point I've gone through the process of designing a console, the undertone consoles are, you know, the same thing, is that... You know, people will come up with a particular amplifier design and, you know, like in the case of the uh, 
APIs. It's the 2550 op amp in Neves. They have these old BA183s that have those cool like 2N3055 transistors in them, the really old style transistors. I may be getting some of this wrong. I'm sure people will let me know if I do, but <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> we'll, we'll be notified. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, don't, they don't let anything slip, but I, I, I think I'm getting some of this right. And so in the case of the Neves stuff, you know, Rupert Neve was obsessed with transformers. He loved transformers. And so, you know, the 1073, it has an input transformer and an output transformer. People have, you know, celebrated them. There's like these Carnhill ones and Mariner ones. And I think people don't really recognize is that the 1073 has an input and output transformer and this amplifier block design, the earlier stuff that it's a class A amplifier design. Then in the console that I had, so in the 90s, I had an 80 series Neve console. It had 32 1081s in it. And so then you have a switching module. Well, that switching module has the same input and output transformer in it and that same amplifier block, but it's just configured to be line input only. And then there's a bunch of summing buses and each one of those summing buses loses gain and you have to make up the gain with an amplifier. And so they they would have these 1272 amplifiers and people would pull those out of consoles and reconfigure them to be mic preamps. And so you could have yourself just a standalone Neve mic preamp. So it's the same thing that's in the 1073. And so by the time their signal comes out of the Neve console and goes to a tape machine, which a lot of people ignore as well, you've gone through essentially three 1073s. And then let's say you mix on that console. So it comes back off of your tape machine, goes into a channel input, you set it to line input, it goes through those same two transformers again in the 1073, then the switching module, then a bus output. So you've gone through six 1073s by the time you've gone through a Neve console, and that's where the sound comes from. And so that's essentially what I'm doing. You know, I, I built myself a little passive summing mixer, which a lot of older mixers are done that way. They'll just sum passively, even the very early Neve consoles. Later on, they got into virtual ground summing, which is smarter and more efficient and performs better in a lot of ways. Um, but if you don't have that many channels, passive summing works great. And so I built a passive summing mixer, and mine is a multi-stage passive summing mixer. That's the thing that... I don't think anybody ever figured out with passive summing mixers. It's like when you use a console, it's not just a stereo mix bus. You know, like almost everybody's going to have a submix for their drums and different ways to sort of group things together, which all come together into a final mix bus. And so my passing, passive summing mixer has a section of inputs that are for the drums, a section of inputs that are for the drums with all of the other musical elements added into it. And then that all gets summed into another stage where it's just the music, which will, you know, get a little compression on it. And then I have a vocal bus, which also gets summed on its own. And so there's like four levels of summing that happens. And each one of those stages has to have an amplifier on it to make up the gain. Yep. And so when you go through my little summing mixer, and in this case, just as an experiment, I had a, a bunch of these old Langevin AM16 amplifier blocks left over from a Langevin console I bought, you know, like 15 years ago. And so I got a ton of these things. And so I'm using those to make up all the gain from all these stages. And so when you go through my little summing mixer, if you start with the drums, the drums will have gone through four AM16s by the time it comes out the other end. So, you know, on the way in, I'm going to replicate a similar path. And so you really get the multiplicity of all of the character of these, you know, incredible musical old sounding devices. And I'm really trying to like accurately capture the sound of an old 60s recording setup. 
you know, and that's the era, you know, the late 60s is when these AM16s were, you know, around. It really makes sense. I mean, maybe today I'll actually be able to power it up and, and really experiment with it. My initial tests were, were really good where it's like, as soon as you put something through this, it has a sound to it that's so immediate. It comes out of the speaker and it's like, okay, this sounds like something and it sounds wildly different than just coming directly out of the computer. That's one of the things about these old recordings that I love so much is when you hear it, it's a, a particularly in the high end, there's this sort of unifying character to the, the high frequencies that you hear in the sibilance of the vocals, the cymbals on the drums, on the attack of the acoustic guitar, on the percussion. Like It all has this total unifying quality to it that's very musical and allows you to have you know a lot of presence in the mix without it being harsh at all because these things are all sort of smoothing it out and converting transients into overtones and all of this stuff that's going on that makes that vintage stuff sound so so beautiful you know that's a fascinating experiment yeah i want to key in on something that you mentioned in addition to all the different stages in those old consoles that many people would tweak stuff within them. So are you saying that it, essentially each one of those classic consoles kind of is a semi-customized beast? I think I, I was using the word configure. And what that means is that typically what people do on, on a console, and the you know the APIs and Neves are, are a good example, they create an op amp, an operational amplifier, which is just this basic amplifier design that can be configured to serve different purposes. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to use that amplifier as a mic preamp, you would configure it a particular way. If you're going to use it as just a balanced line input, you configure it a different way. But it's the same basic amplifier. Yep. And the same goes if it's using to make up gain on a summing bus. And you can externally configure them to do that. The AM16s are the same way. When, when you look at the manual for it, this is the way people thought about things back then. It has all these instructions on how to strap the input and output transformers differently and how to pad or load them differently in order to get the gain structure that you need out of the preamp because the AM16 in particular is especially unflexible. <laughs> it just has one gain. It's That amplifier is just like 55 dB of gain and everything has to be configured externally. So you have to pad a bit at the front or you can strap it for 150 ohm output instead of 600 ohms. And then you can get a, you know you can drop the level a little bit, drop it 6 dB on the output. And so there's things that you can do that will get it more in the range that you need depending on what the purpose is externally uh, on the preamp. So that's what I'm talking about. So it is it. actually stock to the original thing but the original intention was for those things to be configured for a specific application in the console. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Which is out of curiosity, when into your production career did this curiosity about how these sounds are created come from? I've always been drawn to nostalgic sounds. It's sounds that have this sort of timeless quality to them. My big influence in life has always been Led Zeppelin, and, and those recordings are just unbelievably magical. I agree. They're surreal to me. Like They live in a world that doesn't exist anywhere except in the universe of Led Zeppelin. I feel that way about all that stuff, man. Dark Side of the sure, Moon, yeah. the Beatles stuff, like all that stuff in that era, just yeah. there's something about it. It's a quality that I think has a significant emotional impact. Yes. When you can really capture the nostalgia of those sounds and it comes out of the speakers. It really affects people a particular way. It, 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 you, you immediately have the sense of like, this sounds like something I've heard before. And, you know, there's been a lot of psychological testing that's been done that 
familiarity equates to preference when human beings are presented with something. Um, the people that do testing for radio have done exhaustive psychological testing on this stuff. And so they want people, when they first hear something, they want people to think that they've heard it before because it feels like preference when they're hearing. It's like, oh, I think I know this. I know songwriters who use that knowledge when writing. Yeah. With the idea of making a song already sound familiar to the listener upon hearing it the first time. Yeah, for sure. It's it's obviously very applicable when you're writing the song. I think it's also applicable technically when you're designing the sound of a recording. I mm -hmm. think that it it's it can be as powerful in that context. That's very powerful knowledge about how the human mind takes in this art we call music and yeah. connects with it. But where's the line, I guess, between using that knowledge to create something new but nostalgic versus something that's just derivative, I guess? Sure, yeah. I mean, whenever you're referencing something or, or you know, trying to incorporate something that has a nostalgic quality, it's unavoidably going to be derivative. And my th thing, at least what I've tried to do, is to bring something new to that world, you know, that mm -hmm. either didn't exist then or wouldn't have been considered or thought of then and always try to bring something new to it. You know, it's... It's cool to be able to recreate something that's great. I, I'll do it just to sort of entertain myself. Um, I do re-records of stuff all the time just to see how close I can get to something. But I would never do that with an artist that I'm working with because, you know, music needs to move forward. It, it needs to evolve. Yeah. And to just do an exact duplication of something in the past does not make sense to me. Drawing on influences, I think, is very healthy. And, and I, I don't think it makes sense to to try and create totally in a vacuum. Everybody's influenced by other things from the past, from the present, and it's important to be. Being totally in a vacuum, is, I, I think, is very odd. You can be very, very out of touch if you do that. I think it's interesting that you say that you basically do it as an experiment slash exercise. Yeah. I hear a lot of modern producers talk about experimentation, but I don't hear them talk much about doing exercises like sound alike recordings but what's interesting to me about that is that's actually something that's been done in music exercises like especially in orchestration for instance there would be exercises in orchestration classes in the 1800s and still to this day where the whole idea is to orchestrate in the style of or orchestrate right using just this particular portion of the orchestra. But the exercises like that, and same in visual art. I mean, I, I dated a professional artist for a long time, and when she was going through school, these types of exercises were a, a big part of skill building. But at no point was it ever considered the actual art. I guess. Yeah. It's an exercise in expanding your own palette and sort of having more tools in your tool belt. This approach was how I started because I'm, I'm mostly self-taught. Oh, I would have never guessed. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, devouring whatever information was floating around at the time, which was considerably less than, than there is now with the internet. What I used to do with my little studio in Northern California was, you know, I had a band going. I had this band, T-Ride, and we were trying to develop our sound and songs and get signed and put out a record and all that stuff. And so while that was going on, there would be 
a few days a week that we would set aside where we'd work on our own music. And then there would be a few days a week that we set aside for having outside clients come in that I would record just to make money and pay bills. And on the days that we set aside for ourselves, if we had a particular song to work on, that's great. If we didn't, I would experiment. And it was so important. It was it, it was the most important era of my whole experience learning how to make records because I was free to do whatever. If I wanted to spend an entire fucking day just trying to get the coolest kick drum sound in I've ever gotten in my life, I could do that. And like, you never get that opportunity when there's, you know, five band members yeah. <laughs> twiddling their thumbs with their arms Very crossed, true. waiting to start their project, you know, like you can't do that in the moment. And yeah. the creative environment, when you're actually in the room with a band getting ready to actually try and create something, there's energy in the room that has momentum to it. And you have to really be sensitive to that. That energy can can really die. The momentum can really die if I spend way too much time fucking around, you know, trying every single mic in the room on the kick drum. You know, everybody's just like dying of boredom while I sort of jerk off, you know, trying to <laughs> chase a kick drum sound. But if I do it on my own time and I come up with a combination, oh man, if I put mm -hmm. this mic all the way on the other side of the room in the corner, I get this incredible thing. And I got there because I tried 50 other things leading up to that when the band shows up it takes me five minutes to set that up and i already know what i'm going to get from it you know and so you have that shit ready to go absolutely and what's cool too is that you said that you were doing it not in the off time because you're still working but when you wouldn't have something to work on that actually when i was getting good at guitar but also trying to be a songwriter for my band back 20 years ago or something. One of the things, I guess, I come from the metal world and classical world, and one of the things that people would always say is that the dudes who write are never good players, and the dudes who are the best players can't write. And there's some truth to it, but the way that I got around that was... I can think of a whole lot of exceptions to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe exactly. There, is, there is, you know, so, something to that. But man, I, I know a lot of people that, are, that, that break that, that rule. Exactly. Uh, the way that I did it was if I feel like writing a song, if it's coming to me, that's the priority. But then the rest of the time when there's no juice, that's when you practice. And that right. way you get get it all done and I feel like it's a it's a similar approach that way you get both the work done that you need to get done and then you also expand your skills at the same time yeah yeah man okay so on the momentum topic of keeping a session going I think you can really tell can't you like when the momentum is starting to die like it's almost like you can just feel the vibe in the room start to shift. Yeah. Is that something that comes naturally for you, like uh, the understanding people's emotions side of being a producer? I suppose so. The psychological side, I think, is extremely important. I've, I've always been very tuned into that, that aspect of it. And navigating people, I, I think, is much more complicated than navigating equipment or, <laughs> you know, technical stuff. Because human beings are so unbelievably complex and... 
when you know you dive into a creative endeavor with other people, the personalities and the emotions and everything get extremely complicated, especially with whole bands when there's lots of people that are involved creatively and different people are pulling in different directions and you're sort of in the position of being a referee for a lot of that stuff. And knowing how to navigate that stuff, I think, is probably more important than getting a great kick drum sound. How did you learn that? Because you said you're self-taught. Where did that come from? Well, <laughs> I think part of my development comes from my parents. My father was an aerospace engineer. <laughs> and so that was definitely, you know... I'm not surprised. Yeah, he uh, had all kinds of amazing technical stuff. He would bring home these like whole panels of test equipment that were being built at, at the places where he worked. And, you know, and my brother mm -hmm. and I would put together pretend spaceships and stuff. And he used to take me to all these amazing locations where I'd see incredible stuff when I was growing up. I certainly, you know, that was the beginning of my interest in the technical side for sure. And then my mother was a family counselor. And so I was basically, you know... Boom, there <laughs> in, you go. In counseling yeah. my entire life. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah, not, not an enormous mystery there. No, not at all. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and, and my I don't know if this is really accurate or not, but my mother has always said about me that she thought I was uniquely balanced between right and left brain function. And so I, I don't know if that's really true or not or whatever. It's just, you know, something a mom says, but, or at least my mom would say. I was about to say, <laughs> usually moms say, no, honey, you're really good at guitar. Right. <laughs> yeah. I haven't really heard of too many moms saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if, you're, if your mom studied organic chemistry and, and psychology, then I suppose they would. But if that's actually true, then that may be part of it. But for me, like the process, I, I never really thought about it specifically that much. But for me, I, I've always had this goal, which was finishing, finishing a song or a record or whatever mm -hmm. it was that the task was laid out to be. And getting everybody to cross that finish line was always what I was focused on. And whether it was solving a technical issue or just getting people to agree to do it were all just things that needed to get done to get over the goal line. And early on, I started to recognize how important it was to really be able to finesse people in the right direction to try and get everybody to work together to finish a goal, you know, and... And when, when it's amazing how quickly things fall apart when, when people are at odds with each other and are not working together to actually help each other succeed at something. When, when there's somebody that's trying to sort of undermine somebody else or there's, you know, sort of a power struggle within the band and, you know, people are being dismissive or whatever, like it, it can unravel so fast. And like getting everybody on the same page was so glaringly essential early on in the process. And early on, I was I just had bands showing up, you know, that were paying by the hour, you know, 20 bucks an hour, whatever it was. You get me in the studio and the whole thing. And, you know, I'm just here to help you guys get stuff done. And it very often got very complicated with people having different strong opinions and stuff. And I'd have to try and figure out how to make it get done. And that was, you know, one of the things that was always really important to me. And I think got recognized with some of the people that hire me, whether it's, you know, the bands themselves or people within the, the record industry, A&R people or whatever, that I'm a finisher. And that has a lot of value. Absolutely. 
like being able to actually get it over the goal line, regardless of what is going on along the way, you know, there be maybe somebody that's, you know, almost OD'd in the control room and people that are fighting each other yeah. and having contractual conflicts and all kinds of stuff. But like at the end of the day, for me, it was always like, you know, this is just stuff that I have to figure out to get this done and and get to that goal, you know. That's always what I my, what my eye was on was was just trying to figure out how to get there, you know. Man, I think that when a label hires a producer, you know, they don't want to know about any of that shit. Right. <laughs> to what you said yeah. about the OD cuz I've experienced those types of scenarios uh when I was producing yeah. with bands just being dangerous, yeah, <laughs> dangerous yeah. and stupid and dis- self-destructive and shooting up, just all kinds. You know, I don't need to tell you, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, it happens. I learned the hard way that I should never, ever, ever bring it up to the powers that be. All that matters is that it gets done. And my job is to make sure they survive. Yeah, yeah. And it gets done. And I actually know certain people who were or are because they're still alive very talented guys but who weren't finishers whose careers basically stalled out really hard because they couldn't do that part of getting everyone on the same page long enough to really yeah get projects done on time and so they would just start taking longer and longer and longer and never really get done however Maybe when they did get done, like six months too late, they sounded phenomenal. Right. No one gave a shit. Yeah. So finishing, I think, is everything. You're saying that you didn't really think about this stuff too much, though. So that tells me that you've got a high emotional intelligence that it comes to you naturally to understand how people are feeling. I suppose so. I, you know, I, I feel like I am reasonably sensitive to that stuff. My ex-girlfriend would say that I'm definitely not. <laughs> Um, (laughs) I've been been told that too by exes. (laughs) (laughs) Who actually asked that I get tested to see if I had Asperger's (laughs) at one point. Me too. Really? Yes. (laughs) That's incredible. Well, there's a word I'm not allowed to use anymore in 2020 that starts with an R, but uh, that I was emotionally R and that uh, I should see if I have Asperger's. Yeah, if you're in, in the spectrum. Yeah, and what she didn't understand was that I didn't have any problem feeling or understanding emotions. I just didn't want to tell her how I was feeling about her because I kind of hated her. Yeah. And uh, I didn't want to hurt her because if I told her the truth, it would hurt her. Right. I did break up with her, but I was holding back for her sake. That's what she didn't understand. Yeah. Well, that's one side of it. And in my case, and for her, like her judgment of me was, was not entirely inaccurate. I think to her... I really did have Asperger's and I think that was totally fair to say because it wasn't as much that I didn't want to hurt her. I didn't feel safe being honest with her because her reactions were so explosive. Well, yeah. Why would I ever want to invite that, (laughs) you know? And so anytime I was being honest, I would be punished for it. Man. And it's, it's something that I really, really learned in life along the way with that experience and ultimately when we broke up, because I actually did go in and get tested to see if I had Asperger. I was like, sure, 
Let's let, let's do this, you know? And the, at least the, the person that we worked with said that I don't. But that was something that was so incredible that I learned that th- that's important in every aspect of life, whether you're making a record or in a relationship or whatever, is to invite the truth. And I behave in a way in my travels through my life where I invite the truth from people. And sometimes people have to say things to you that are not super comfortable to hear, but those mm-hmm. are exactly the things I want to hear because <laughs> they're the things that will make a difference Absolutely. in my relationship with them. So when people come to me with something that's potentially uncomfortable to hear, I say, thank you so much for being honest with me about this. I'm so grateful that you let me know because now we can figure this out instead of being like, oh, and defensive and oh yeah, well, you're a jerk and what, <laughs> you know, if you do that, You'll never hear the truth again. You'll live your life not in reality. Yeah, man, you're making me think of stories from my own life. Uh, There was a person that I used to work with that I started one of my most successful projects. I'm not going to say which one because I don't want people to know who he is. But Sure, yeah. The person doesn't matter. Yeah, he, it doesn't matter. I'm not here to talk shit, but he's a paranoid schizophrenic diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And he used to also tell me I was emotionally stunted and all that stuff. But what he didn't understand was if you did so much as critique something, the reaction would be so severe that it was scary. Yeah. Like I was afraid of getting hit or something, yeah. or just that I was going to get screamed at for like two hours straight. So I would keep it inside. Yeah, I was very sensitive to how he was going to react <laughs> to those things. Right. I don't see how you can actually be emotionally, let's call it ignorant to other people and make it through the music landscape because musicians, artists, even managers, everybody, there's so much emotion. There's so much drama with all this. Uh, Not everybody's an egomaniac, but there's still, this is personal stuff. It's a very intimate experience because people are, you know, expressing very intimate things about their own lives, their beliefs, their experiences. It's very intimate. So it gets, you know, there's a lot of passion and a lot of emotion in that. And so things can get very explosive or complicated or whatever, very quickly. It's just the reality of it. That said, not looking for a one-size-fits-all answer here or like 10 tips for building rapport, nothing like that. But Mm -hmm. just out of curiosity, how would you at least mentally approach getting everybody on the same page or getting that trust from the artist so that they could share those intimate feelings with you that are necessary for great art to happen. Yeah, there's a few things that are really, really important with this. I've talked about them before on my YouTube channel and other interviews and stuff. It cannot be overstated, you know, how important these have been in my travels and I think how valuable they are um, when, you, when you're really trying to get, deal with the psychological part of it. Trust is extremely important when you're working with a band. You're stepping into their creative universe and they're asking you to help them make creative choices about their music and what they're saying, their perspective on life and the world and everything. I try to show up educated to actually really comment on that stuff for a band. And so 
I would go through a process of, of just getting to know the band at the beginning mm-hmm. of the process and create opportunities for us to all hang out and talk about music and listen to records. I want to know what all your favorite albums are. I want to know what albums you hate. I want to know everything about what you love and hate about music and even your perspectives on life and what's important about being a human being and you know what, what works in a relationship or not or whatever. Like All of these things are super important because they all end up being embedded in what's being expressed through music. And so I create opportunities to do that before even getting in the studio. And so I'll hang out with a band for a day or two or three or whatever. And, you know, a lot of very fruitful things came from that when I would spend time with bands. Because at this point, a lot of times, you know, when I get hired, it's an AR person or a manager or somebody says, oh, so-and-so would be good for you because they did this record or whatever. And you can find yourself in the situation where it's like, hi, nice to meet you. Let's start making a record now or writing songs and we don't even fucking know each other. I would create the opportunity to get to know people myself. I'd take the initiative to do that. And it makes a huge difference because once you're in the studio and it's like, okay, do we like this kind of a part or do we like that part? Do we want to use this guitar? Do we want to use a Strat or a Les Paul? Or do we want to, do we like this lyric or that lyric? And I'm being asked to weigh in on all of these decisions that are going to be either really good such and such music or shitty such and such music. Just put insert the name of whatever artist I've worked with, Good Charlotte or Queens of the Stone Age or Nickel Creek or whatever. I have to know what good Nickel Creek music is and what shitty Nickel Creek music is. So I can actually contribute to those decisions in a way that's going to help them navigate to something that's really, really an extraordinary addition to their legacy as as a band and musicians. And so I really take the time to educate myself about it. And I think bands really appreciate that, you know? And so by the time you actually hit the ground running and you're actually making those choices, they know I've taken the time to really know what they're about. And so it's much easier for them to invite me into it. So I think that's really, really important. And the other thing that's really important is how you address anything that may not be working or is not good enough in your opinion. I mean, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I'm being hired specifically to police those things. If I show up and say everything's great, then what the fuck am I doing there? Right. (laughs) They can just come up with ideas and if if there's nobody there to tell them that they're good or not, then they'll just use them all. It's so important to know how to address what's not working because that's all of the value of why I'm there, (laughs) you know? Like if I can't be honest about those things in a way that's going to move things forward, then I'm just shitty at my job. Does that get harder when you're dealing with more famous artists just because they're getting guessed all the time by everybody around them and you have to be the person who's says, no, it's got to be better. Is it more challenging, I guess, the further up the ladder they are? I think there can be some pitfalls there because, you know, people can end up living in a bubble. They always just want to hear about how great they are. But what I've found is even with people that live in that bubble, if you approach them in the right way, where you address things in a positive way, ultimately, they're really grateful for it. And they end up trusting me more than other people that they've worked with who just told them yes all the time. Because at the end of the day, they really do want to hear the truth. Yeah. But they just have to hear it the right way. And what nobody wants to hear is, this part isn't working. Or I don't like that lyric. That's a dumb lyric. You know, this solo sucks. Or the verse isn't right. You never talk about it in terms of what's not working 
or what's bad or shitty. Nobody ever wants to hear that. <laughs> it's the <laughs> worst way to start fixing something. And so you always frame it in a positive context. If I don't think a part's working, I always start with, I think there's an opportunity here. We could do something that'd be really cool on this verse. That's what you say. And people are like, oh, cool, let's try it. And you never never address the part of this verse sucks. <laughs> you know, like just, just skip that part. I may be thinking it, but I'm never gonna fucking say it to their face. Who wants to hear that? That's the worst way to start that process. And they'll remember that too. So saying something like that verse sucks, depending on who you're saying that to, that could be planting a seed, which could turn into something that poisons lots of different aspects of the session, I think, because yeah. you know we're dealing with emotional creatures. Yeah, for sure. I don't know how much effort somebody put into one of these ideas. They may have worked on it, you know, for days and days, you know. Yeah. And they may be very attached to the effort that they put into something. And it may be difficult for them to let go of, you know. And so I, I always approach everything framed in a positive context. It's always framed in the context of like, let's try and make something better. Let's try and try something that'll be exciting and interesting. There's an opportunity here. Let's let's go for this. And then you keep that energy up and moving forward. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before. And if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Back to what you said about saving the experimentation for before the session. Yeah. You know, so that the artist doesn't feel like you're saying they're wasting their time. How does that work when you then have artists that are so different? Like Queens' Sonish, 
to Good Charlotte are so different. Doesn't there have to be some experimentation? Like, well, like Queens of Stone Age is a super specific kind of vision. Yeah, and ironically, I went directly from the Queens of the Stone Age record to the Good Charlotte first album I did. <laughs> so it was... So I was wondering, like, and there couldn't be more different. An aesthetic, you know, shock going from that, from one to the other. Yeah, I mean, well, that's part of the process to me is getting my brain in the mindset of that particular artist. And so, you know, with Queens of the Stone Age, I had some mutual friends there between Blag and Nick Oliveri, who were in the Dwarves. I worked with a lot. And there's a guy, Trevor, that worked at my studio that was that worked with Queens. And so there's a lot of mutual friends. And I knew about the band. And, you know, before I got together with work with them, you know, I really, really listened to the two records they already had out and put a lot of effort into really understanding what it would be. And, and ultimately talked with Josh a lot before we started about what the vision was. And, you know, that's a band where Josh shows up with a, a vision. Like, that that dude has a vision for his band and his sound, for sure. And I'm more there to help him execute it than try to create a vision for his band. It's just that kind of a project. There's there's other ones where I'm doing it all. I'm coming up with the vision. I'll play the parts. I'll help write song, like everything. But, you know, Queens of the Stone Age, you know, Josh, he has a very complete vision for his band. And so we talked a lot about what the approach was going to be for that record. And so he would describe what he wanted to hear and I would figure out how I would approach miking things and what spaces to put things in and all of that kind of stuff to try and capture the vision. Our second podcast episode ever, we called it Musical Translator. Mm. And it was all about that the real job of a producer is to be able to take that, what the artist is telling you, and translate it, mm -hmm. understand that vision somehow that they're telling you either right. through talking about it or some demo and translate that into a sound that is what they actually want to hear. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really the job at the end of the day, being a producer. It's making sure that that connection happens. And, you know, then w when I shifted gears to Good Charlotte, that one, they were inviting me more to try and help guide a direction sonically for that band. They were fans of the Third Eye Blind record that I'd done. They, they liked that approach. And the vision really came together for that project after spending time with them. I flew out to Maryland where they lived at the time and just hung out with them for a couple of days. We drove around and listened to music and very important things happened in, in that time that I spent with them when I've told this story before, but it really illustrates this process of really learning what the band is about. You know, we were driving around in their car and they had a CD changer and they had a bunch of stuff that was sort of predictable. They were listening to Rancid and a bunch of other sort of punk pop bands and stuff. But then a CD came on. It was the soundtrack to the movie Edward Scissorhands. Oh, yeah. That's a great soundtrack. <laughs> it's an amazing soundtrack. Danny Elfman's brilliant, yeah. man. It's, it was incredible. And it came on and I was like wait, isn't this Edward Scissorhands? <laughs> They're like, yeah. And I was like, do you guys you guys listen to this like driving around their car? Like, yeah, we love this soundtrack. We love this thing. And that's a huge, huge part of what they love in music. And that moment alone informed so much about how we approached their record. So ultimately, I ended up writing a whole album intro, which is me just totally emulating Danny Elfman. And that sort of transitions into this super like punk rock thing. That's the beginning of the record. And, and then ultimately the whole album has this cinematic scope to it mm -hmm. that punk rock bands, as far as I know, just hadn't done before that record. 
that was kind of the first one that was like that. Um, maybe there's other ones like that. But I, I wasn't aware of it, but... I don't know of any. When they came out with that and kind of had that dark Tim Burton-ish kind of yeah. vibe, if you want to call it, that it was totally unique in the pop punk scene. Usually pop punk is associated with like pizza and skateboarding and stuff. Right. Yeah, and, and punk rock came from this place of being this very sort of like raw, stripped down thing, mm -hmm. which is great, and I love that about punk rock. And like any musical genre, it, it grows and evolves and changes and breaks off into different sort of, you know, sub-genres and stuff, and this was a point where Good Charlotte wanted to break off and, and do something that, was, that would help define them as a band, and so, you know, we went in this direction of doing a, you know, I think some people sort of question the sort of authentic punkness of a band like Good Charlotte, but you know, they're certainly drawing on those influences, and and we were trying to take their punk rock influences in a, to a new place mm -hmm. where that was this cinematic, epic, sonic experience instead of just a bunch of guys thrashing it out in a garage. Let's take it to a new place. So that's what we did. And that, that was totally informed by that, that visit with the, that band. I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't done that. I have a question about the Queens of the Stone Age record. Sure. Speaking of vision, because uh, talking about vision, you got me thinking. So I understand. So with Josh, you're translating his vision, right? Yeah. But then you have another Titan in there too, Dave Grohl. That's another visionary. How do you balance that when you're dealing with more than one person who is such a heavyweight musician, uh, such a heavyweight visionary? How do you manage to get that across the finish line or even get everyone on the same page? I see what you're saying about Dave. But he, in that context, I think he was really ready for a break from being that visionary leader Got for it. the Foo Fighters, you know, and was so relieved to be able to just show up and play drums. <laughs> he was just delighted to just do that. And it was all he was there to do. So he loved his role. He loved that role. I think at that time... It was just the perfect thing for him. There's a lot of responsibility that goes along with being the leader of a band. You know, um, my wife is having to deal with it all the time. You know, today we got up and she's like, oh my God, there's so many people waiting for questions from me right now. And it's about everything. It's about merchandise and approving pictures and yep. touring questions and like on and on and on and on. You know, like it's a lot. It's a lot. And I think there's a point in everybody's life where they, they just need a little bit of a break from it. And it's totally relentless. It's insane. And, and so for Dave Grohl, that experience for him was a break. The unrelenting responsibilities that he has as the visionary leader of the Foo Fighters, you know? And he carries so much weight in that project. I think even as much, he's a wonderfully generous, inviting guy, and he invites contribution from everybody around him. But still, at the end of the day, the reality is, it's like he's really, you know, from what I've experienced with him, he's writing it, and he ends up playing a lot of it, and, you know, he'll invite other people to play and have other people involved, and you know, other people to contribute as as much as, as is working, but ultimately he carries so much with that band. And he strikes me as someone that's like a really good dude, but still like just a heavyweight. He's a wonderful person. He brings incredible energy. Uh, he's one of those guys that is just relentlessly positive and upbeat and energetic in the room. 
it was one of those things, you know, like people will add up in different ways in the room when you're playing music together. And, you know, they each bring their own individual energy and it all adds up in a different way. And Dave's energy in the room when, you know, we were basically tracking live, it was Dave, Nick, and Josh playing live to, to put down the foundation of uh, the songs on that record. His energy and momentum and excitement to play music and play drums is so infectious in the room. It was incredible. And originally, Dave was only supposed to play on three songs on that record. And we did those songs first. And so then the drummer in the band, Gene Troutman, who's an awesome drummer and had been touring with Queens and stuff, had to step in to try and record the rest of the songs. And it just... it didn't work like not having Dave's energy in the room was such a gigantic shift and it wasn't even that Gene couldn't play the parts he certainly could play the parts but the psychological dynamic between Gene and Josh and Nick as opposed to Dave and Josh and Nick was so wildly different where that thing of of Dave being a musical titan of, of his own even though he was really there as, as a hired gun just to play drums, he just would not take shit from anybody. There were moments where it's like, even if he just had to get up and pee and Josh would start to try and give him shit, like, come on, man, we're just starting to get into this. And then Nick would, you know, invariably chime in with his cackle, you know? <laughs> and Dave didn't give a fuck. He would still just get up and walk out the door and he would do this thing where all you'd see is the back of his head and his hand held up next to his head, flipping the bird, and he would just walk out the door and say, Nirvana, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and he's right. <laughs> and, and he's right, motherfucker. You know, he played Nirvana. He gets to fucking go to the bathroom whenever the fuck he wants. <laughs> he earned that know? one. Too bad. Yep. You know, speaking of those uncomfortable conversations, that sounds like a very uncomfortable conversation. You know, if he was only supposed to do three songs and then... Uh, the drummer in the band, the feel just isn't the same. How how do you have a conversation like that without blowing the band up? Yeah, well, they're very tough. They're very difficult. You know, uh, Josh and I discussed it at a certain point. You know, we were both sort of feeling the reality that, like, wow, this is just not the same. You know, that um, the energy with Dave playing drums is incredible and we're all missing it. And ultimately, Josh was the one that had the conversation with Gene. You know, they just, they have a longer relationship than I did at that time. So he's the one that told him. And I don't know how that conversation went. Oh, okay. So as the band leader, he took it upon himself. He did. I would have certainly done it if he asked me to, but Josh is, he is a band leader, mm -hmm. you know. It would have been a little weird based on Josh's personality and the way he runs his band. I think it would have been weird for him, even from me to have that conversation with Gene, you know, like I just met him. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they, they knew each other for a long time. And, and Josh is definitely like a leader type guy. He's a very type A dude. I think he was comfortable having that conversation. I don't know how it went, but Gene did not continue playing with the band after that. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine that being a pretty crushing blow. Yeah. I've had that conversation with drummers in other bands. Yeah. And it sucks. It's not a good experience. Um, it's a total bummer to have to have to tell somebody that it's not working out, you know? Um, it's, it's devastating. In my experience, I've had it a lot, yeah, with drummers, but then when doing metal records, always with rhythm guitar, there's all... If there's two guitar oh, players yeah. in the band, yeah, and there's always one dude who's just better. Yep. <laughs> 
so funny. I've, yeah, I haven't done as many metal records as you, but I, I, I did a few. And it's so funny because that exact thing comes up. And you know, like in Metallica, there's always this thing where it's like, James Hetfield is just going to play all of the rhythm guitar. Oh, Nobody yeah. else, there's no other human being on the planet that can play fucking rhythm guitar like that dude. He's a circus No, he's a fucking, god. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your 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 characterization is probably better. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, that. he's a he's a he's he did, he's a rhythm god for sure. It's insane, yeah. dude. I practiced a bunch of that shit early on that like battery is my favorite fucking It's in that like how the fuck do you really get that that tight and that clean, man? He's incredible. I don't know because also the all the down picking and right hand stuff, it's like it's like exercise that if you don't stay on it, you lose it really fast too. It goes away. Yeah, it's a very perishable skill. So yeah, I heard that he sits there. I don't know if this is true, but every day he would sit there and just down pick for an hour on the two lowest strings with a metronome before doing anything else. So like he made it like an exercise routine yeah basically yeah I, I i don't doubt it i mean his his skills were completely off the charts yeah. to totally unmatched just imagine being kirk hammett and i actually recorded with kirk hammett right in the moment when he was joining that band interesting yeah he came in to play guitar with this bay area band called blind illusion and he was just coming in to do some guitar overdubs and he was like man it looks like i'm i'm gonna be playing with metallica you know and he was playing me some of the stuff, you know, at the time, the stuff that he was going to have to learn and shit, you know. And I think this was just after Master of Puppets came out. You know, Kirk's obviously he's a great guitar player, but there's no other human being that'll ever play rhythm guitar like that. That's just not happening, <laughs> you know. And I think he probably knew that. The thing that I wonder is when you have a situation that's that huge, like, I mean insane huge does someone just say it works in part because of this other person's ability to do something so the James Hetfield rhythm sound is a staple I've noticed that that issue with smaller bands is way more uncomfortable obviously I'm not talking I don't have experience recording bands that size but I can tell you that right. that conversation between two guitar players is way easier with bands who have put out records and have some success because they kind of, they'd already know the score and they like, and this is their job now and they want right. it to continue and they just know this is, this is how it goes. This guy does rhythms. I don't do rhythms. Yeah. But I feel like with the with baby bands, that's when it's really tough because they just don't know. They don't know how it's done yet. So, yeah, yeah, you know, everybody is still trying to justify um, their contribution to the band. Yes, you know, it's like they're they're still trying to figure out what their value is within that band, and so there's, you know, that carries a little bit of insecurity with it because everybody's still trying to prove themselves within the context of the band. So, so it, it is tougher in that context. Once once it's established and there's stuff out there and it's like this works, you know, it's like just let the guy that does that do that and you know, you can do what you're good at and everybody's going to be happy. You totally. Know? So look, I know we're running out of time here mm -hmm. and I want to be respectful of that. We have a few questions from our listeners. Okay. Actually, a ton of questions from our listeners. So I'm not going to ask you to answer them all or anything, but 
Is it cool if we do a few? Sure, of course. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Because uh, people were very, very stoked that you came on, as was I. So from John Maysale. <laughs> cool. Dear Father Valentine, <laughs> I would like to thank you for always caring about whatever you work on. Your passion and integrity is part of what drove me into engineering and seeing you now talking about records you've worked on and your enthusiasm about the love of making music that makes someone feel something is contagious and inspiring. Thank you. My question for you, being a very driven, motivated individual striving to get the sound right so it serves the song, is just in your nature like many of us and working with great musicians helps that inspiration and drive. I am curious if you have a story of working with another assistant engineer, mixer, producer, editor, etc., that helped you find another part of your creativity just from watching them work, which inspired you to take it to yet another level that you weren't expecting. I appreciate your contribution to the audio community and time. Thank you. Cool, yeah, that, that's a good question. And, you know, like I said earlier, I don't think anybody does or should create in a vacuum. And when I'm around other people, I invite other people to contribute because there's a certain point, uh, particularly once I got in this sort of cycle of just going from one record to the next, my opportunities to take time to experiment d diminished. And so I would always invite other people to, you know, suggest things or, or do stuff to just bring something new to the equation. And a really, really good example is Jakir King. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough, you know, we were just hiring a studio at the time, a studio called Toast in San Francisco when I was working on the Third Eye Blind record. And Jakir King came with the studio Toast as an assistant engineer. What? <laughs> if you can, ima if you can imagine that. that. <laughs> well, it was, you know, 1996. So it was a very, very long time ago. Was he like big then yet? No. Okay. Yeah, he was he was sort of splitting his time between mixing uh live for bands and working in the studio. Certainly the people that frequent in Toast knew how incredibly talented he was. Okay, so it's not Jakir as we know him now. No. Early Jakir. Yeah, this is early Jakir. Okay. Uh, before he, you know, really had I think his first real breakthrough was with Tom Waits. So I mean, he was in a relative sense, unknown as an engineer and, and producer and mixer, but wildly overqualified <laughs> as, as an assistant engineer. That became apparent to me within hours of being around him. We were just setting up for the session and I had the things that I knew that I wanted to try, but he worked in this studio and he knew the room and just in the little bit of, of talking to him about it, I could tell this guy knows what he's doing. And so I started to invite his contributions and, and I told him things like, I need a cool bass sound. We're using an SVT. You know, we're going to put it in this isolation booth. I know what I would put on there. I want to hear what you would use. So just mic up an SVT the way you would do it. And, you know, he ended up using a small diaphragm condenser mic, not something I would normally choose to do. It sounded great. And so our relationship continued and he became a person that I really turned to to bring really cool engineering ideas. And one of the things I loved about his approach back then that you could hear even as he moved on, you know, into other records was his use of the room. He, he was really, really good at capturing the sound of the room that the instrument was placed in. After the Third Eye Blind thing, I brought him in to assist on some uh, Smash Mouth stuff. And then ultimately, I worked on this record for a band called Citizen King. And I didn't have time to start the project when 
they wanted to start it. I just wasn't available yet. I was still finishing up other things. And so I told them, I know this guy, Jakir. He gets incredible sounds. And I want him to start this record with you guys. You guys just record a bunch of stuff and then we'll all get together and finish it off together. They agreed to do it and they loved Jakir and he did an amazing job and he captured a bunch of incredible stuff that I probably wouldn't have approached that way. He contributed a lot of really cool stuff. One of the, one of the very specific things I've mentioned before, I'll say it again, was... He had picked up this miking technique from a guy named David Bianco. And I even heard through my YouTube channel that David Bianco got it from yet another person who chimed in in comments was like, I actually showed that to David Bianco. So it's got a long sort of progeny, but um, it came through David Bianco to Jakir and then Jakir showed it to me, which is this thing of miking the batter side of the kick drum with a U87 in cardioid underneath the snare with the, the mic actually facing the batter head of the kick drum. Mm -hmm. And after he showed that to me, it's like, I'm putting this on every drum kit I ever record after this from this time forward. <laughs> you know, like it was just so good. And it wasn't until more recently where I'm, you know, more obsessed with recording drums with one microphone. I haven't been doing it lately. But that was a huge, huge part of, you know, me miking up a drum set. I just love the sound of it. This really cool knocky attack on the kick drum and then this nice detail to the bottom side of the snare drum. You get this cool rasp on the snare drums. So yeah, definitely. There's people, you know, that I've been around that were, you know, there to even just be assistants or whatever um, that have totally, you know, influenced and informed how I approach things. It's great having people. And, and now I really enjoy having people that are young and hungry that approach things way different than I do. And, and mostly it's in how they approach things in the computer. You know, just young people approach using a computer so differently than people that started making records on a console and a tape machine. Like, it's very difficult for me to think about things radically differently than that. And so even the way I set up a session in Pro Tools is still kind of the same as the way I would set up an analog console. But, you know, when I see young kids set up a session, it's like, holy crap, <laughs> what is all of this? Man, I'm really happy to hear you say this, by the way. Yeah. Because, I don't know, I'm not surprised that you're saying it. But I'm really happy to hear you saying it because that is how kids are learning. I mean, some kids are learning the traditional way, but that is how a lot of tomorrow's producers are going to come up. Yeah, for sure. It's great that someone such as yourself embraces it um, because a lot of people don't. A lot of people are very negative about it. You know, since I'm self-taught, I really grow, grew up with the attitude of like, there's no right way to do this. You know, there's there are so many different ways to approach anything that you're doing. All that matters is that it sounds good. And I don't really care how you get there or what you use to get there. I mean, if you get there with entirely all plugins, but it feels amazing coming out of the speakers, that's fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, right now I'm dicking around with <laughs> stringing together in series a bunch of late 60s preamps to get there. And it's a totally different approach, but it doesn't matter as long as it feels incredible when it comes out of the speakers. And I, I, and I don't care. None's more valid or justified than the other and you know and that, that's what I love like I carry with me either the benefit 
or the encumbrance of my traditional engineering experience. And young people, they either don't get that benefit of knowing those traditional engineering skills, or they're actually not encumbered by them. And they can approach things in a totally new and different way that may actually ultimately be better, you know, for what they're trying to achieve. So Absolutely. Yeah. There's no rules. <laughs> it just has to sound good. That's the only rule. There's one rule. It has to sound good. That's the golden rule. Yeah, which is, by the way, very, very subjective. So, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So, question from Dom Simpson. On the album Midnight that you did with Grace, yeah. many of the songs would have been really easy to turn into, quote-unquote, overproduced pop tunes, but you really seem to take on board her previous music, which is quite different than the music on Midnight, and create a soundstage that presented the songs in a way that wouldn't alienate her audience while still making them big. Uh, and for example, in Alive Tonight, the drum sound is simultaneously natural but big, where it would be quite easy to mix that song very sample processing heavy in order to get that big sound. How do you make those important choices on what direction to take with the production when working with an artist whose music is, at the time, new to you? I guess you kind of answered that before a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and that project, there was a whole journey that happened that resulted in where the record ended up. And ultimately, where where it ended up was this thing of trying to bridge that gap. Grace with the Nocturnals had done a bunch of cool records that have this really cool, nostalgic, you know, uh, classic rock sound to them. On The Lion, the Beast, the Beat, she definitely started to you know, expand beyond that a little bit. And, you know, like with any artist, when as soon as you start sort of uh, <laughs> straying a bit from where you came from, you know, there's some people that invite the exploration and there's some of her fans that, you know, through her travels have always been like, I, you know, you should just stay with what you did before, you know. But Midnight was that moment for her where she was like, I'm just tired of trying to make records sound like Neil Young, you know, like... <laughs> I would love to do something different, you know? I've done that. Yes. I know how to do that. It's great. Neil Young's great. That's awesome. Can we do something else now, you know? <laughs> so mm -hmm. there was a lot of stuff going on in the band dynamic um, that was very, very complicated. But going into it, I was really totally happy to make a Neil Young record. I mean, I listened to her stuff and I was like, cool, I love Neil Young. Let's let's go down that road. And I imagined, I, I pictured the process being, they'll have a bunch of songs, we'll do some pre-production, we'll go and record it really quick. It's a great live band and we'll make a cool sounding record and that'll be great. And boy, is that not how that went. <laughs> not even remotely. And so we ended up in this place where we were trying to bridge that gap be between what was going on in some versions of popular you know, music at that mm -hmm. time and that nostalgic sound and try and bring it all together on one record. It's really challenging. And I really put a lot of care and patience into the choice of the treatment of every single sound and every single choice that was being made and what those sounds represented. What ones were more modern sounding, what were more nostalgic mm -hmm. sounding, and trying to strike that balance so, you know, it would achieve both of those goals. Very, very difficult to do. I'm, I'm very pleased to hear there's at least, I know now, there's one person out there that got that and appreciates it. <laughs> Because a lot of people didn't. <laughs> I mean, I think fans, I don't know, man, fans 
can be very narcissistic, I think. Sure, yeah. In their expectations of an artist. Yeah, everybody goes through that. You know, kind of full circle back to the beginning of the conversation when you were talking about these experiments and exercises you would do uh-huh. on your own time. When you got into a situation like Grace's Record, is that where you draw on that huge backlog of things that work in certain ways? It is. Or was there new experimentation to be done? Very little new experimentation going on, you know, on a project like that. You got a bunch of people in the room. We did do some pre-production, but pre-production, again, is not as much about getting sounds. It's more about figuring out parts and songs and stuff. So, yeah, so when it's time to get a guitar sound, it's like, okay, I know when I plug in my Vox Cambridge to this speaker and I put, Mm -hmm. you know, this particular... Uh, you know, buyer M160 on it, it's going to sound rad. And so we're just going to do that right now, <laughs> you know? And so I'm not sitting there experimenting with a bunch of different stuff. That's great. Yeah, so yeah. it pays off. That's a case in point of how yes. that method pays off. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff on that record where there's things I had done before where I'd had the time to, you know, try every microphone in front of an instrument. We actually used a harpsichord oh, nice. on the song Delirious, and um, and I knew that I had this particular ribbon mic, this uh, RCA KU3A, that just was perfect. It had the right edginess for it, and so I just knew, let's just put the KU3A on the harpsichord, here we go, bam. You know, and so, so yeah, that's, that's the benefit of having done those experiments at other times, you know, and right now, like I'm, I'm rewiring my studio in time where, you know, in a time where I'm not going to be, um, actually, I don't have people waiting for mixes or stuff and I'll be able to do experimentation and play with it and make sure that it's going to be a thing that's going to get the results that I want. So Mm -hmm. once I'm in that circumstance of like, okay, now it's time to generate a mix for somebody. I'll be able to do that quickly. I know that the setup is is ready to go, and I'm not like, hmm, I wonder what it would sound like if I replaced all the mic preamps with AM16s on my summing mixer, you know? And like wasting my time doing that when I should actually be mixing, you know? Yeah, okay, two more questions, then I will let you go. Uh, okay. Stacy Smyer is wondering, hey, or saying, hey, Eric, major fan of your productions and your dedication to the project's vision. My question, do you have any specific ways in which you manage your time to keep a production as fluid as possible? I've seen your previous videos on your YouTube channel, which everyone should check out, by the way, and uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. But anyways, I've seen your your previous videos on your YouTube channel, and they're very detailed in the production realm. And by the way, let me say, your videos are great. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah, they've been super fun to do. So, question was, do you have any ways which you manage your time to keep a production as fluid as possible? Okay, cool. Yeah, I think there's some really useful stuff there. And, uh, you know, I settled on a particular approach that I thought was efficient, you know, and, and kept the momentum going on a project. I have the benefit of owning my own studio, and so that affords some luxuries that may not be available for everybody. But, you know, there may be ways to incorporate this into a workflow for, for anybody. So I would do pre-production in the space where we ultimately do the recording. And doing it there, the upside is that um, I can be sort of dialing in sounds while we're also working on songs. And so each day we would probably work through two or three songs uh, pre-production. And the goal is, is by the end of working on a song, it's like we have the arrangement, everybody knows what parts they're going to be playing. You know, maybe there's some lyrics and stuff to flesh out later, but we got the basic 
framework of what the song is. And so the band would show up maybe at noon or something each day, and we would do eight to 10 hours of that each day. Before that, I would show up early, maybe at 10 a.m., and I'd have a little laundry list of things that I wanted to change with the recording setup. Mm -hmm. And so I'd be experimenting with the recording setup as we're doing that pre-production. And so there'd be like a week of working on songs, and the beginning of each day, it's like, ah, let's try this different mic on the snare drum, or let's try this thing, you know, here or whatever, and we'd make little adjustments. So by the time we're done with the pre-production, we're also totally dialed in with all of our sounds and we can start recording for real. And so we're also like everybody's comfortable in their place, they're comfortable in the environment, their headphones are dialed in, everything's like super dialed in. And so now it's like, okay, man, let's do this for real. Here we go. We're actually doing keeper takes on these songs. And I also do the pre-production almost a little bit more like a performance because I, I always feel like bands get so much better at playing songs once they've performed them for a period of time in front of audiences. And so what I would do true. is the beginning of the day would be working through some new songs and then the last thing we would do is a review where we do it like a live show set. It's like, okay, we're going to play through all of the songs that we have pre-produced up to this point at the end of the day mm -hmm. just to keep them fresh for everybody. And so that's the pre-production part of it. And then, you know, when we're tracking basics, I always try to have as many people playing at the same time as is manageable. And so as long as everybody can play good enough to generate some version of a keepable performance, then let's have them play, you know? And my studio was flexible enough to be able to accommodate that. You take a big bite and you get a very immediate, nearly complete picture of of what you're capturing, you know? And I think that's one of the benefits of having multiple people play. Mm -hmm. It saves a lot of time. So you get through that process. I usually give the band a break because by the time they've done pre-production and all the basic trackings, you know, that's probably three weeks solid of just being in that room and, and intensely working on recording and tracking and whatever. And so I give them a break. So they'll, they'll get a week off in that first month. And I spend a week just comping and making submixes of things and all that stuff. So I'm set up where when, once it's time to do overdubs, I've already got like a great sounding drum mix going. And, you know, this process varies depending on whether I'm working on tape machines or in the computer. But at the end of the day, you're just trying to come up with a cool drum mix. So when you open the session or put on the reels, you immediately can just hit play. You hear amazing drum mix. You know, the, the basic stuff that they recorded is, is all in its place mm -hmm. and you're ready to go. So you have that really great perspective to start building on or that reliable perspective so you know what you're building on. And so then you do overdubs. And this is a thing I've talked about before. I think it's, I don't know if everybody else has figured this out. I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. It's so, so, so important. So once you get into the overdub phase, you break the day into two halves or really probably two-thirds and one-third where the first part of the day is tracking instruments. And so you can do guitar overdubs, keyboards, percussion, whatever, whatever fucking bullshit. You can pull up a song, jump around, record stuff. It sort of depends on the flexibility of your setup. I have it at my place where I can have stations set up, where I can have guitar stuff ready to go, I can have bass stuff ready to go, I can have percussion, piano, keyboards, whatever ready to go, and we can jump around. You can pull up a song and just do all the stuff on that song. It also can be cool to do assembly line style, where once you're set up with guitar, just jump to every song, do guitar. Um, so either way, you do probably the first six hours of the day doing that. Yeah. 
After that, every day, do some vocals. So like at the end of the day, whatever you sort of fleshed out on, sing vocals on that song. Mm -hmm. Because the mistake that I think a lot of people make is they do a bunch of overdubs and then they get to the end. The only thing left to do is vocals. And the reality is, is singers cannot sing 10 hours a day. It's physically impossible. Yeah. You'll fucking destroy their voice trying to make them do it. And they feel shitty about themselves because their voice is giving out and all of that horrible stuff. Singers should sing one to two hours a day. That's it. If you're really going for it like balls to the wall singing, you cannot sing more than two hours a day. Yeah. You'll just burn out their voice. And that way you can give them days off too. Yeah, totally. You know, with that process, after maybe a month of that, everything gets finished at the same time. You've been working on the vocals as you go. You've been working on overdubs as you go. And by the end of that month, everything's done and the singer isn't stuck feeling like he's has in, inadequate endurance to be able to finish the vocals on the record. Yeah. Because everybody else is like, oh man, I play guitar for eight <laughs> hours straight. You know, what's your problem? You know, it's just a different thing. It's such an unfair way to treat what's arguably the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's su such an illogical way to do things. Yeah. Last question from Alex Prieto. Eric, could you go into a little bit of detail about the tube trap construction in the Barefoot A room? Okay, sure. Yeah, I ended up building tube traps myself. Um, this was another little adventure that I went on. You know, there's a company called ASC that makes tube traps, and they make great ones. They look beautiful and function wonderfully. They're just incredibly expensive, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't like spending that much money. And I, I, I went on this, you know, adventure of creating what they call an attack wall. Um, it's a way of treating a control room where you essentially decouple your listening position from the room acoustics, the modes of the room. And you do that by surrounding yourself with these tube traps. So you need a fucking shit ton of them. And so I decided to just build them myself. And so they're relatively easy to build. And what I did was um, I got this, it's stiff fiberglass that's used as pipe insulation. And it comes in a variety of diameters and wall thicknesses. And the stuff that I used was probably two inches thick for stuff that was 10 to 12 inches in diameter. And I, I made some really, really big ones that would reach down in the very low frequencies that I put in the front corners of the control room. So they're like 18 or 20 inches in diameter and the walls are like three inches thick. And so they come in three foot sections. And so I would just glue them together with construction adhesive to get the height that I needed for them. So a lot of them were only, you know, six feet tall, but there were ones that uh, my control room was a compression ceiling. So the very, very front where the speakers are is much taller. It's like 12 feet tall. So I put three of them together and have the thing go all the way from the floor to the, to the ceiling. And so just use like... Um, yeah, construction adhesive, I guess, uh, like, what is it? Liquid nails. Put a bead of that around uh, the edge and then just stack them up and they glue together. You're supposed to cap off the ends. And so um, I just use quarter-inch plywood and just cut a circle in the quarter-inch plywood. I was able to get Home Depot to cut them for me because they just had a, you know, this circular scribe saw that did it super easy. I didn't have a tool that would make it easy to do that. Doing that with a jigsaw would be a pain in the ass. So Sounds like it. 
Yeah. And so then you don't necessarily have to put the cap on the bottom because it's sitting on the floor. It's capped by the floor. So that's half as many of those things that you have to cut and pay for. I'm always into efficiency, man. I'm, not, I'm tried, trying to do things like as cheap and efficient as possible as long as they work. And then the, the fiberglass is kind of nasty. You know, as we all know, it's kind of itchy, horrible shit. <laughs> and so, so I found fabric at a fabric store that was very stretchy. It was some sort of stretchy polyester type fabric. I apologize. I don't remember exactly what that was. Any fabric that you find that's that's stretchy. And all you have to do is just cut it into a tube shape that is smaller than the diameter of the tube that you're covering by a couple of inches. Uh, it's stretchy enough that it will stretch over it. It's just like putting a sock on your foot. And it holds itself in place because it's, it's stretchy and it holds on to the to the uh, fiberglass material. And the excess at the ends, you just tuck inside the tube, put the little wooden cap on there, and you got yourself a tube trap. And they work amazing. It was a, a revelation for the acoustics in my control room. Thank you. That was very detailed. Really appreciate it. Yep. That, that should get you there. All you got to do is find the pipe insulation. If you search around, you'll find it. I forget the name of the company. It's like Johnson Manville or something that makes it. It's not the kind of thing that you can buy at Home Depot. So you have to find like a supplier for that specific product. Uh, once you do, you can order it and they'll ship it to you or whatever. You know, you can find it. If you're persistent, you'll find it. Real quick, I just wanted to tell you that uh, my friend Sam Pura says hello, and I have uh, something he told me I can quote him on. Okay. But uh, we were talking about some undertone audio gear. He was talking about the MPEQ, which for anyone listening is a preamp and EQ, and this is what he had to say yeah. about it, um, which I asked him if I could share with you. So I was like, I bet Eric would like to hear this. He says, it's the most brilliant design for an EQ and and the preamp is everything I love about a Neve and an EMI and an API all put together. It's simply my favorite piece of gear. I use it on everything, and it always sounds amazing. It's my first choice every single time. It never bloats out, never sounds harsh, has an incredible saturation and glossy sheen. There you go. So Sam loves it. <laughs> okay, awesome. Uh, I love Sam. I, I mixed a record uh, that that he produced, and I had a great time doing it. He's a, an amazingly talented guy, and uh, and that's it's very kind words from him. And he's he's making very good use of them. I'm I'm glad they're in his hands because he makes them sound so good. Yeah, he he's. Uh an audio enthusiast to the core. Yeah, yeah. He's he's got that passion and all of that that amazing, you know, enthusiasm for it. He's he's wonderful. Absolutely. Well, Eric, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to come on. It's it, it's a really really cool resource that you've created and I'm so happy to be able to contribute whatever I can to it and uh, and and be a part of it. It's a really cool thing. Thank you very much. Okay then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio and of course Please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.